0: Misty and the praise team, thank you so much for coming to be with us again this morning, all the way out from Romeo. Thank you. Yes. We appreciate them, church. Yes. Thank you so much. And thank you for worshiping with us this morning, church. Thank you for coming out and being here and lifting your voices to the Lord in worship. If you're to examine what a church actually is, there's a few things you can look for in a church. One of them is that they gather together to worship. They also gather together for communion and for baptism. The church gathers together to pray. And one of the important things that we do together as a church is we read God's word. And we allow it to change us from the inside out. And before we dive into this word this morning, I'd like to read it this morning. We're not going to put it up on the screen, but I'd like to take a moment just to immerse ourselves in the word of God. I'd like to ask you to Consider what's going on in the text as I read it for you. Close your eyes maybe, consider the scenario, consider the key players like Jesus and the religious rulers and the woman who was brought before Jesus in sin. And allow the Holy Spirit to prepare you for what we are going to apply to our lives this morning. In John chapter 8, starting in verse 2, we read, early in the morning he came again to the temple. This is Jesus. All the people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, he said to them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now the law of Moses commands us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. It's the word of God for his people that we could dive into it today in this message and apply it to our lives in a beautiful way. And I hope the Spirit has excited you this morning for what's to come, much like he's excited me. I've been like a kid on Christmas morning, I can't explain to you. We get the sermon calendar a little bit early, and i am able to see what we're going to preach on, and I saw this, and I've just been ready to bring this word this morning. So super excited about it. So much so that I'm driving in this morning, heading southbound on Marsh Road, and in my excitement, I might have pressed a little too hard on the accelerator. I might have been going a decent amount over the speed limit. And if you remember where we used to have church there at Algonquin Middle School... I'm sorry, yes, be seated. Thank you. <laughs> See, I'm excited. I'm forgetting some of the details. But as I'm driving in a 50, probably doing about 60, you come to Algonquin Elementary where it drops to 35. And do you think I saw that in my excitement? I didn't. And I went past it, and guess who I saw sitting off in the corner? Yeah, you know who I saw. That's right, that's where he's always hanging out. And instantly, oh no, I'm thinking of excuses in my head. What can I tell this, this officer? Oh, I'm preaching this morning. I'm super excited. I'm looking for anything I can do to buy away my guilt. Looking for mercy. And isn't that what we do in a situation like that? We want mercy for ourselves. But there's a flip side to that as well. And I experienced that when I was working a couple of weeks ago down in Virginia. And on the way down I-77 south through West Virginia, there's a lot of hills through the mountains, a lot of turns, and the 70 mile an hour expressway breaks down to 55 because it's, it's pretty dangerous. And it was raining, so I'm doing 55 like an old man, and out of nowhere a motorcycle. Ooh, I mean, you don't hear them until they're right next to you. He flew past me. And if I would have had a convertible, I would have been shaking my fist in the air. Where is justice? Where are the police when you need them? This guy demands justice. And you want to be going around the next corner and see the police having this fellow pulled over. But isn't it interesting that when it's us, we want mercy. When it's somebody else, we demand justice. We wrestle with this every day as humans. And today, as we break open the text, we're going to see that there's only one person who was ever able to perfectly balance forgiveness and justice, and that's Jesus. We've been now for eight weeks in this sermon series that we call The Essentials, Why Truth Matters. We've been looking through the Apostles' Creed line by line and taking that ancient creed and affirming some of the doctrines of our faith and going into the text to match it up with what we believe so we can assure ourselves. And today is the same. We're going to be looking at a line in the Apostles' Creed that says, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And this is super important to us. Because us as Christians, and especially everybody in this world, we need to know that our sins are forgiven. That's one of the things that we absolutely need. And we're going to see Jesus perfectly balance the scale this morning as we look at it between justice and mercy. He's also going to balance the scale without promoting the sin. at the same time, without condemning the sinner. But before we dive into the text, I want to make one thing clear. If you look in your Bibles, or if you're using the app, you can see it there. There's a little footnote that says, in the the earliest manuscripts we have, don't include chapter 753 through chapter 811. And that's not a reason to dismiss this passage. The majority of scholars, biblical scholars, believe that this event actually did happen. They're just saying that the earliest transcript of John that we have doesn't include this. But this account is very much in step with Jesus' character, how he deals with sinners, how he deals with the religious elite. And it overall matches the theme of the New Testament that Jesus does forgive sinners. And in today's passage, we're going to see Jesus encounter a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. And we're going to get this cool perspective like a fly on the wall or this front row seat as we get to see exactly what happened. And we'll see front and center that Jesus forgives sins. And when we say that, we say sins, Jesus forgives sins, It's plural. That's because there's many types of sins in our lives. There's sins that we commit. Things that we know we shouldn't do but we do anyways. There's sins that we omit. Things that we know we should do we don't. And then there's also the stain of original sin passed down through our lineage with Adam that stains each and every one of us, and Jesus forgives them all. And the points that we're going to examine this morning are going to help us understand what forgiveness of sins looks like. And the first thing we'll see is that forgiveness requires the awareness of guilt. And as we dig into this rich passage as we yearn to apply it to our lives, one of the things we need to do is establish some context here. So it's good that we take this passage of Scripture and we look a little bit before it in the Bible, and we look a little bit after it just to understand the fullness of the story. And if you look at the tail end of chapter 7, what we see is that this time is the Feast of Booths. It's a time in Jewish history when they would gather together for this feast from all over Israel. They would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and they would live in these booths or tents. They would be celebrating what their forefathers went through as they were wandering the wilderness before they went into the promised land. They remembered that their ancestors lived this way, so they did this in a time of remembrance and celebration. And Jesus' brothers said to him, Let's go, it's time for the Feast of Booths. And he said, No, you guys go ahead. My time's not yet. So they went ahead of him. And then in the middle of the feast, at the epicenter of everything that was going on, Jesus went very discreetly, and he went straight into the temple. And when he gets to the temple, he begins to teach. Right in the middle of those who at the time were seeking to arrest him. They were seeking to find fault in him. And he didn't skirt around it. He went right into the center. And people now are believing. There's a great murmuring going on. They're hearing, could this be the Messiah? Could this be the chosen one who has come to rescue us? People are believing, and this news is spreading, and it spreads to the Pharisees. Like, he's there. We've got him. So they send their officials to arrest Jesus. And these officers get there, and they hear the teaching, and they say, whoa, this isn't what we expected. And they go back to the religious elite and say, nobody in Israel has ever taught like this guy. There's something different here. So there's this huge commotion being stirred up by Jesus as people are starting to believe. And at the end of chapter 7 we read that the feast ended and it said everyone went to their own homes. But not Jesus. He didn't go back to Capernaum. He stayed there. He went out of the temple and crossed the Kidron Valley and spent the night on the Mount of Olives. And that's where our scripture brings us this morning. And in verse 2 we read, in the morning, that's important, we'll touch on that in a moment, but in the morning he goes straight back. Where he just left, being confronted by these officials, Jesus goes right back there to the temple. And that's a significant setting because the temple is where the Pharisees were. It's the epicenter of what they had going on, so Jesus knew very much he was going right into the middle of it. And he was mission-minded to square off with them this morning, to give them a critical piece of teaching. But if you look at verse 3, it also tells us that the religious leaders themselves were ready to square off too. They brought all of their horsepower to bear. The Pharisees were there, but that wasn't enough. They wanted backup, so they brought the scribes with them. The scribes were masters of the law. And since they were going to use the law against Jesus, they wanted to make sure they dotted all their I's and crossed all their T's. So they brought the scribes in with them. They desperately want Jesus to slip up, and they want their experts there to prove that he slips up. The day before, when Jesus was in the temple, they weren't ready but today they're ready. They've got this well-orchestrated plan, and so they bring a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. We use that loosely. And they ask Jesus what should be done with her. And they're so confident in their plan. If Jesus says her sins are excused, he's directly violated the Mosaic law, and he's caught. They can press charges against him. But if Jesus says, no, no, She needs to be stoned. If he agrees to execute her, then Jesus is now violating Roman law because Rome was in charge of Israel at that time, and Rome said nobody gets to try a person or execute them except Rome. So Jesus is caught. The Pharisees think that they've constructed this perfect no-win scenario. It's a perfect catch-22. Anything Jesus says is wrong. And you can almost read the tone of voice they have in verse 5 when they say, so what do you say? What do you say we should do? Almost a snarky connotation to it. It's convenient, isn't it? That they just so happened to have this woman. They just happened to find her. This was a big setup because, according to the rabbinic law, two or three witnesses needed to be there to condemn this woman. And one of them had to be the man who was also in the adultery with her. But it's interesting that he's not being accused, it's just the woman. This was a trap. This woman was entrapped in this adultery for no other reason than just so that they could get one over on Jesus and convict him. And the scribes and the Pharisees drag this woman out before Jesus, out in the open, put her on public trial, and they lay it down to Jesus. She's an adulteress. What do we do? And what does Jesus say? Whoa, adultery? Oh, my gosh. No. He doesn't say that at all. He knew this woman. He knew everything about her. He knew the sin, didn't catch him by surprise. And he knows you in the same way. He knows you inside and out. He knows the sins in your life. Nothing you do catches him by surprise. And in his response to this sin revelation, Jesus is seen as being wonderfully calm and perfectly humble. Instead of answering them, in verse 6, we read that he bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Can you see it? Jesus crouches down and writes with his finger on the wall and it's, on the ground. And it's interesting, he's not using a stick. He's not using his whole hand or maybe his toe. He's writing with his finger. And in doing this, he's silently communicating to these religious leaders something that they should know. He's telling them that he alone can decide the fate of this woman. Because the law that they're trying to use to trick him and to trap him was written by him. If we go back to Exodus 31, when God was writing the law to give to Moses for his people, establishing this covenant through them with Moses, we read that the law was written with the finger of God. And that makes this New Testament passage all the more impactful to us. Because the God that wrote the original law with his finger is present there in the person of Jesus Christ as the law is being debated and twisted and used to trick him. So Jesus continues writing, sending them this subtle message that things were changing. He had been saying the kingdom of God is at hand, and that's what he's laying out for them. He's about to apply this law but he's about to do it completely differently in a gospel-centered way. In fact, right after this passage, if we're looking at context, at the end of this passage, as you go into verse 12, the first thing out of Jesus' mouth is, I am the light of the world. The law up until this point has been great in pointing out the shadows, pointing out the darkness of sin, but radical forgiveness is about to come on the scene through the light of Jesus Christ. But before forgiveness could be extended, guilt needed to be present. And the woman was guilty. There's no refuting that. She doesn't try to deny the accusations. She was guilty because she violated the law and her sin was exposed. Can you kind of see her in your mind's eye? In a minute, we'll read a little bit more and we'll see that she's standing before Jesus. But I have to believe she's probably on her knees right now. Head in her hands, weeping because she knows she's guilty. And she knows she desperately needs forgiveness. That's one of our deepest fears too, isn't it, church? Having our sin exposed, shown to others, having our sin out there on display. We spend so much effort putting forth this facade that everything's great, I'm walking perfectly, when underneath we can feel the weight of that sin. We can feel the depravity that exists in our own hearts. But here's a reality check. We can hide that sin from other people. We can put up that wall. We can tell people everything's going great, but you can't hide your sin from God. Romans 3:23 tells us that we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's holy standard. We've broken his law, and because of that, every person is guilty. And the hope for forgiveness is not so much in the awareness of the guilt that exists within us, but knowing that Jesus' forgiveness removes all condemnation. So let's go back into the Bible and look at verse 7 through 11. John chapter 8, 7 through 11. And as they continued to ask him, this is Jesus writing on the ground Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. There is some beautiful and deliberate tension going on here. With every second that Jesus hesitates to give them an answer, the religious leaders are getting more and more frustrated. They're continuing to press him for the answer because their motive for being here was not to judge the sins of this woman. It was to trap Jesus They ultimately want to pass judgment on him. And their plan was hanging in limbo based on what Jesus was going to say. In verse 7, he says, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. What a great response. Because catch-22s and no-win situations do not apply to the sovereign God of the universe. He exists outside of that. And his answer here. Doesn't abolish the law. It keeps the law intact, but it applies the law in a greater way. He's leveling the playing field. He's taking these self righteous religious elite and he's bringing them down to the level to exist with this woman, exposing their sin. And the only person that day who was without sin was Jesus. And he's the only one who could truly judge. He knew who was in the crowd. Jesus knew that in that crowd was the men who had witnessed the adultery. He knew that in that crowd were the people who had set this whole thing up to entrap this woman. He knew that in this crowd was the man who had been part of the adultery as well. Not one of the accusers was free from guilt. Either they sinned in this plot or they were guilty of past personal sins. So Jesus bypasses this question that they asked him. They said, what should we do? And he turns the tables and says, what have you done? And that causes them to think. Causes them to contemplate their own sin. And in verse 9 we read that one by one they went away, beginning with the older ones. These accusers with this well-thought-out plan drop their stones and walk away when their own sin is exposed. And then there's this great pause. In the text, it's it's kind of like what's coming up next, and after writing in the dirt a second time, which is neat to think about because God wrote a second set of law for Moses after he broke them, being furious of the sin of Israel. After Jesus again wrote a second time in the dirt, he stands up, face to face with the woman, and delivers his verdict in verse ten. He asks her, "Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you?" And she said, No one, Lord. So Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you. While she holds her breath, while she's waiting for a sentence to be handed down by the only one who can sentence her, Jesus stands up, stands up, and he doesn't pronounce death. He pronounces forgiveness. He doesn't condemn, he openly forgives. It's fitting that he's the only one left. Two or three people needed to be there to accuse, so the accusers are not present. And the only one who's there who can, the sinless Messiah, is the only one with the authority to forgive her. Make no mistake, her sin requires justice, but Jesus in that moment knows that he's going to be going to the cross, that his sacrifice is going to take care of that justice that's demanded for that sin. And because he is the one that's going to be doing that in this moment, he can forgive. That's his mission. The Bible says that God sent Jesus into the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And because of sin, we as people, as humanity, we stand condemned. But in Luke 19.10, we read that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He didn't come to condemn and as I thought through application of this, it came into my mind, uh, my 12-year-old daughter. She loves to explore and see abandoned places. Have you ever seen these urban explorers? They like to go to abandoned places and walk through them. And one particular we like to watch together, we, we go on YouTube and check it out. It's the story of Jazzland down in New Orleans. And the local economy was not strong enough to support Jazzland, which was an amusement park. And so the big amusement park conglomerate, Six Flags, stepped in. Six Flags came in and purchased the property, dumped millions of dollars into it, gave it a facelift, brought in new attractions, and Six Flags Jazzland was a source of pride for this community. They loved it. But then in 2005, if you're thinking about New Orleans in 2005, Hurricane Katrina came on the scene, broke the levees, and the city, as well as Six Flags Jazzland, was under many feet of seawater. It took a while for the seawater to recede, and when it did, there was mold and rust and destruction, and they couldn't get in there quick enough to repair. There wasn't enough funds available. There were many other things to worry about, so the park sat and rotted and was exposed to the elements, and the vegetation took over. That once beautiful park was left abandoned and rust and nature overtook it until almost nothing was left. This once beautiful source of pride was now a marker of shame for the community as it sat there as an eyesore. And in many ways, our lives mirror what's going on with that theme park. That's the nature of sin. It destroys what was created in beauty. You and I were created in the image of God. Sin came on the scene and marred the image, where you can still see it. I still see the image of God, but sin does its work to smear and to mar, and it brings shame with it. Gone is the perfection that we are created in. And like that park's Ferris wheel and like the frame of the roller coaster, if you look, you're like, yeah, I can kind of make out an amusement park. Glimpses of the original intent can be seen, but the damage is too great for us to fix. Six Flags Jazzland, like us, is dead. And because of that, it is marked for destruction. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we are all dead in our trespasses and sins. We walk around physically alive, interacting with people, but in our hearts we are spiritually dead. In this story that we're reading in John, this passage gives us perspective to see this truth because Jesus didn't march into the temple that day on mission to find this woman and make a bad woman better. He didn't come to this earth and suffer and die on a cross to seek us out and make a bad human better. It wasn't his mission. Jesus came to this earth. He didn't come to make bad people better. He came to make dead people alive. That's why he came. We are spiritually dead in our sins, and when we are there, there is no hope. But thankfully, the experience that woman had, the forgiveness that she received is the same forgiveness that we can receive when we come to Jesus in faith. He became a perfect sacrifice for us. He paid the penalty for our sins. He fixed what we couldn't fix. He took care of what we did not have the capability of taking care of. Isaiah chapter 53, 5 says it like this. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. He was pierced, crushed, and chastised for us. That's what he endured. And On the other end, we came out with peace. Because of his wounds, we are healed. It's his sacrifice on the cross. Because of that, we can go by faith from death to life because Jesus' forgiveness renews a dead life. I want to take the rest of our time here this morning to look at this very last verse, verse 11. It's the interaction between Jesus and the woman. The final sentence In response to his question, she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. And he ends with, go, and from now on, sin no more. And this single verse is so important because baked within this single verse is the entirety of the gospel. Look at her response. She says, no one, Lord. She has faith that he is who he said he was. She believes that he is the Messiah. And because of that faith, she receives forgiveness of sins. Not because of anything that she has done. Not because of anything good that she brought to the table. But out of his great love, Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you, or you are forgiven. So we see the foundation of the gospel there. Faith and forgiveness. And the third part we see is this phrase, Jesus saying, Go and sin no more. This indicates a new life. It's a changed life. When we are forgiven, we go from death to life. We receive the spirit of Christ living within us. We can't live a sinless life on our own. If we could do that, we wouldn't need Jesus. But With the guidance of his spirit that lives within us, we are slowly and deliberately changed throughout our lives to match the image of Christ. So, when Jesus tells this woman to go and sin no more, he's not saying go and live a perfect life, live a life without sin. He's telling her that she's been given freedom, that she's been given forgiveness, and this puts her on a new path. It's a path of holiness, and it's the same thing that you and I receive when we come to Jesus in faith. But we have to be very careful not to do what our human nature wants to do, and that's to take these words and put them in the wrong order. Our intellect tells us it should be go and sin no more and then receive forgiveness. But when we think that way, it's a false gospel, so it's very dangerous. Jesus says very clearly, come to me with all of your sin. Come to me with your brokenness. Lay it all out before me and let me forgive you completely. He's telling us that he will give us his spirit so that we don't have to go and try to live a sinless life alone. We can do it walking hand in hand with him. That's the path that we're on. So today, if you're walking in shame, if you're walking in disobedience, if you're living a defeated life, then follow the example of this woman and come to Jesus and lay it all out before him. Confess your sins to him and by faith receive the forgiveness that only he can give. Is that the foundation of the Christian experience of what we believe is the forgiveness of sins? That's what separates us from all the major religions of this world is that Jesus Christ forgives sins based not on what we've done but only on his sacrifice. So if you place your faith there, If your faith is in Christ, you're no longer condemned. You're no longer a slave to sin. You have a new life. You have the Spirit of Christ living within you. And hand in hand with your Savior, you can walk with Him toward a life of holiness. Let's pray together, church. Father God, we are so thankful that this is the case. We fail miserably. If left to our own devices, all we do is fail. We have a tendency to sin based on the original sin that exists within us. But thank you that you foresaw that. Thank you that you knew of our plight before sin was even on the scene and you designated Jesus to come in great humility, to leave the beauty and splendor of heaven, to walk with his creation, and to suffer and die on our behalf. We thank you for that blood. We thank you that it washes away sins and that the action on our part is so simple. It's just faith. I pray that your spirit would be working this morning in the hearts and lives of people. If they do know you, I pray that they would be emboldened knowing the power of your forgiveness that covers all of their sin. And if they don't know you, Father, I pray that your spirit would open their heart that they would see the beauty of the gospel of a God who forgives our sin, and that they would come to you in faith this morning. Thank you for loving us enough. Thank you for saving us.